Yeah, let's uh, turn in the Old Testament tonight to Isaiah 41. We'll just look at uh, one of the uh, faith rest promises of Scripture. Let's continue the uh, little bit on the faith rest drill. Remember, we have three parts to the faith rest drill, which is number one, to grasp hold of a promise from Scripture. Number two, to develop the rationale around that text of Scripture. And number three, at the point we can, we trust in it. And that's the rest of faith. So in Isaiah chapter 41, we have a, a verse, verse 10. And this is a, a promise uh, to deal with fear and anxiety. It says in uh, verse 10, and Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, yea, I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous hand, my righteous right hand, or in the King James, the right hand of my righteousness. And that last term in that verse, the right hand of my righteousness, or in the modern translations, my righteous right hand, is actually a messianic term because the right hand of God is the thing that he does, he, he accomplishes things. It's, his, his, um, it's part of him that does things. And the part of God that does things is the Messiah, the Son of the Trinity. So that traditionally has, has been looked upon as a messianic term. Okay, so that's the text. So here we are in an anxiety situation. We remember Isaiah 41.10. And we go and we either have memorized it or we read it. And so we're thinking about it. And one of the ways of developing the rationale so that we can actually trust in that text of Scripture uh, is when we look at the text originally or when we look at that promise originally, just look in the context. And if you look just ahead of verse 10 in Isaiah 41, you'll notice that it is linked to the election of God, the elective purposes of God. Um, it's not a promise that sits in isolation from this framework. And you look in verse 8, you'll see it's a specific reference to the Abrahamic Covenant. And you remember that the Abrahamic Covenant was the founding covenant of redemption in history because that was the covenant God said, civilization's going down the tubes and I've got to do something about it and so now I'm going to call into existence a counterculture to the, to the pagan culture. And the point of verse 8 and verse 9 is that God is a God of history. He moves historically. And so when you see a promise like verse 10, where we're going to apply it maybe in our own personal life, in our little, our little circle, that promise is part and nested inside of a larger circle, which is the whole plan of God for history. And that's why knowing prophecy and knowing history is so important because it gives the frame of reference for how God works. Then we can set our lives and plug them inside of that frame of reference. But if you don't do that, you may have trouble applying promises like this because they, they tend to come off like they're just shallow religious verbiage. And you, when you're under, the pressure's on and you've got a big crisis you're trying to handle or a persistent one, you need something besides some shallow shallow religious verbiage needs something that has roots something you can hold on to so that's why it's important to see that these little promises we pull out aren't isolated they're part of the pattern 
So Isaiah 41.10 is one of those great promises. Do not fear, for I am with you. Be not anxious, for I am your God. I will strengthen thee, uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness, is the King James God. I've never got so I can memorize any scripture in the new translations. I always started in the King James, and I guess I'll go to the grave quoting the King James. Um, let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the salvation that we uh, have access to through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does not depend upon our merit, it does not depend upon our good works, because our good works, we know, do not impress you. What impresses you is the righteousness of your Son. And so therefore, on the basis of that righteousness, we have access to you. We thank you tonight that you have made this clear in Scripture. The Holy Spirit has worked throughout history to reveal the Son. We ask that tonight you would guide us as we, as we look at and as we study that great day of the coming of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh, let's turn to the book of Acts again. We've got some more work to do tonight uh, as we look at Peter's uh, analysis of what was going on at Pentecost. And we want to... Uh, review again that in our idea of linking scripture, uh, li linking doctrine with history, we have the session, I guess that pen's gone, we have the session, and actually it's the session of Jesus Christ sitting at the Father's right hand that is the basis for the second event, which is Pentecost, and that's the thing we want to be sure we grasp tonight. The Pentecost is the result of Jesus Christ's session, and Jesus Christ goes to the Father, so you have the Father and the Son who dispatch the Holy Spirit to earth. So whereas the session is the heavenly origin of the church, as we title chapter 1, Pentecost is the earthly origin of the church, as we've titled chapter 2. And we said that in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, Peter uh, goes on this explanation uh, to the people. And we'll shortly see, Peter might have been a, uh, just a, quote, lay person, but his grasp of scripture was amazing. And it's amazing to see how he takes the Old Testament, and remember he didn't have the New, how he takes the Old Testament, he takes the facts of Jesus Christ, and he puts them together. So, from verses 14, Acts chapter 3, verses 14 to 36, the logic of what's going on here is that we have the events of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. Those are the events. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to surround those events with the Old Testament because the Old Testament gives the framework in which you can understand those events. These events do not stand by themselves. They're part of a historic pattern. And we have to think that way as Christians because the moment we allow a piece of the framework of Scripture to sit by itself out here, unbelief will always eat it up. Skeptical attacks will always suppress pieces of Scripture. 
However, the way Scripture defends itself is by linking it with all the other pieces of Scripture. So you have a whole network. It's just like a civil engineer building a structure. One little piece of steel isn't going to cut the mustard, but when you put it all together as a frame structure, then it stands. And that's the way to think about Scripture. You can't take isolated truths without hooking them together. So that's what Peter's going to do. He's going to take these events in the life of Jesus Christ, particularly the Ascension and Session, and of course, the events of Pentecost, and then he's going to put them inside of this Old Testament structure. So last time we said, verse 14, he got up and he first began to work through Job chapter 2. So we want to look at Job chapter 2 and follow his reasoning. Actually, what he's quoting is Job chapter 2, 28 through 32. So if you'll hold the place in Acts chapter 2 and turn back over in the Old Testament to Joel chapter 2, we'll look at how this fits together. It's a section toward the end of chapter 2 of Joel. And the best way of doing it is um, when you do these things, by the way, a little trick I discovered is if you take these little little uh, stickies, these 3M things, and tear them in half and stick pieces in the different text. You can flip back and forth pretty quick. Um, so Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. Let's look at it in the Old Testament context. And it will come after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Again, who's the subject of the action? Who's the subject of the verbs? It's Jehovah God. Important. And it will come to pass after this that I, Jehovah God, will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your daughters and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. So clearly verses 28 and 29 look down the corridors of time from Joel's day and they, he sees an event that's going to take place. And that event is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We understood from last time by comparing pouring, remember this expression, pour out, we learn to interpret what that means by turning to Proverbs 123, which we did last time, and where pour out is in parallel with sharing truth. And I emphasize that because in the last hundred years there's been a, a sort of a Pentecostal emphasis that pouring out the Spirit means I have to fall on the floor and go through all kinds of shenanigans here. And that's not what pouring out the Spirit means here. Pouring out the Spirit means to share content of thinking. The teacher lets her words be made known and that process is it transfers stuff from the teacher's spirit to the pupil spirit. And so that's what's happening here. Transfer of truth from God spirit to man's spirit. So when you see pour out in verse 28 of Joel, the thing that ought to go through your mind is that this is talking about a day of revelation. There's going to be revealed truth that's going to come out and it's going to be known by people in all social strata. This is not going to be confined to a priestly circle. It's not going to be confined to a prophetic few people, it's going to be pretty universal. So that's verse 28 and 29. 
Then, verses 30 and 31 speak of something else. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There's a lot of truth in here. Peter is not going to use all these truths. He's going to select out of the matrix of verses 30 and 31 certain truths. But before we look at Peter, let's look at the original text. In verse 30, it says, I will display wonders uh, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. And he talks about these wonders and signs. So whatever verse 30 and 30, 31 are talking about, talking about miraculous things in nature. Miracles. That's the whole point, verse 30 and 31. But the end of verse 31, look how that sentence ends. Look very carefully at the text as how verse 31 terminates. As it terminates, it gives us a time sequence. It says at the end of verse 31, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, the great and awesome day of the Lord is the day that he brings judgment in and the kingdom begins. So, clearly, whatever the signs are in verses 30 and 31, they precede the coming of the Lord and the initiation of the kingdom. So, they're not a fulfillment of the kingdom. They're events prior to the kingdom. Then in verse 32, the last part of this section, here we have why all this takes place. Because verses 28 and 29 talk about the pouring out of the Spirit. Verses 30 and 31 talk about the geophysical miracles that are going to happen in history. But it has a purpose. In verse 32, it says, It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Delivered from what? What is verse 31 ended with? The coming day of the Lord. So the deliverance in verse 32 harps back to the day of the Lord in verse 31. It will come about whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. And there's verse 31, obvious, verse 32, calls upon the name of the Lord is, is equivalent to New Testament belief, trust. Verse, the end of this verse, if you look at the end of verse 32, it concludes, For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, the, the phrase you see there, those who escape and survivors, are part of an Old Testament concept known as the concept of the remnant. And in the Old Testament, the idea was, here you have the elect nation, all sons of daughters of Abraham. Now here they are, the twelve tribes. Boom, 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 boom. They make up a physical, political entity. But the prophets argued that just because you're physically part of Israel, and you therefore are part and parcel of the Mosaic Covenant, just because you're part and parcel of the Mosaic Covenant and part and parcel of the physical Israel doesn't mean you're in the remnant. That means the saved subset. So the remnant is the reference that the prophets made clear as the nation went down the tubes spiritually and it was deteriorating and falling apart and the monarchy was corrupted and the people were corrupted. That's when it was revealed to Israel that there will come a time when the Messiah will come and he will set up a righteous kingdom. But you all aren't going to go in the kingdom. The only people going into the kingdom are the people who trust in him who, in this phrase, call upon the name of the Lord. 
So verse 32 represents the gateway into the kingdom. And verses 28 to 31, therefore, are phenomena, events, and historical happenings that set up the door to the kingdom. Okay, with that in mind, we come back now to Acts chapter 2. Now, Peter, in verse 17, he says, or verse 16, he, remember, he identifies it, said through the prophet Joel. Verse 17 and 18, he cites those first two verses of Joel. So, it's Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 that are re-quoted in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. However, if you look at the text, you'll notice that the end of verse 18 in the book of Acts contains a phrase that is not found in Joel. That's Peter's addition. And it's Peter's addition to that Old Testament citation that tells you what's going on in his mind. He says, and they shall prophesy. So that means that when Peter is citing these two verses, the thing that he wants to get out of it is, among many things, I mean, he could have gotten 52 things out of it, but he got one thing, and that's the thing that we want to see what Peter's doing here. He's saying there will, the Old Testament foretold a time in history when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a new way and it would be classless. It would be a pouring out of the Holy Spirit without caste, without upper and lower strata. It would be everybody would be involved in this thing. And the people who are involved in it would have access to revelation. There's a revelation press. So there'd be new, new, new truths, new doctrine, or new truths. And sure enough, that's what's happening because of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Then, in verses 19 and 20 and 21, he cites a clipped version of that Joel text because in Acts chapter 2, 19 through 21, he cites most of Joel chapter 30 through 32. Actually, only half of verse 32 is cut. He clips off that section about Jerusalem and Zion. And that's important to notice that he's clipped that out of there. And the reason he's clipped it out of there is because at this point in time, the issue isn't what's going to happen to Jerusalem. The issue, he wants to say, he terminates it and scissors it off after it says in verse 21, call upon the name of the Lord. Because that's where he wants the emphasis. He wants the emphasis on what are you going to do now with Jesus Christ. Not that the other part of the text isn't important, nor that it isn't going to be fulfilled. It's just Peter's point in quoting that text is to focus on Jesus Christ. And so, as he does this now, he begins to build something. And what we said last time was that in verses 28 and 29, this first section of the Joel passage emphasizes revelation, the dissemination of new doctrine. Then, and, and the pouring out of the Spirit, obviously. So we went down further in Peter's message, and our eyes fell on verse 32 of Acts 2. Because as he developed the theme of his preaching, he came to conclude in verse 32 and 33 that this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are witnesses, 
Therefore, having been highly exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now, what is it that you both see and hear? The, the phenomenon of Pentecost. So now, what's the thrust logically of Peter? Can you trace the logic that he's using? He's dealing with a group of people that have seen an, an, an event. And he's telling them how to interpret that event. And what he's saying is that the supernatural things you've just observed, Pentecost, are proof that Jesus has made it to the throne. Pentecost is the historical evidence that Jesus Christ now reigns. It's a momentous thing. It's not just the coming of the Spirit. Yes, it is that. It's the coming of the Spirit, but the deeper question is not the coming of the Spirit, is who sent the Spirit? And that's where, in verse 33, we have an enormously important piece of theology there. Because you'll notice in verse 33, which is connected to verse 32, verses 32 and 33 start out with Jesus as the subject. Not the Father. It's the Son, Jesus, who is the subject here. Well, if Jesus is the subject, what's the verb at the end of verse 33? The last clause in verse 33, what's the main verb of that clause? Pour out. Ah, where have we heard pour out before? That's the Joel passage. Who was doing the pouring out in the Joel passage? Jehovah. Who was doing the pouring out now? Jesus. Guess what the conclusion is? With all due respect to Jehovah's Witnesses, this is saying that Jesus is Jehovah, not Michael. He is Jehovah. It's a substitution, clear-cut proof. So that's, the, that's one of the great things that he's done here with this Joel passage. He has said, Pentecost, this outpouring, this miraculous thing that's happened, is a direct result of Jesus Christ ri ri risen from the dead, ascended, and seated at the Father's right hand uh, uh, after, after he showed himself to the disciples on earth. This thing started in heaven. This is the heavenly origin of the church. And what's interesting about this, and we'll get into this later, have you ever noticed in the science fiction over the past 15 to 20 years, wherever you see a movie or you read a book about space invaders and so forth, do you ever notice that almost nine out of 10 cases, it's always something evil that's coming to Earth. It's always something threatening that's coming out of the heavens to the Earth. Now to me, that's very interesting because it's exactly opposite to reality. Who is it that came out of heaven to the earth at Pentecost? Not the evil, it's the good. But you see, the secular mind tends to think of anything coming into the earth's orbit from outside the earth's orbit as something that interferes. Well, yes. Does the Holy Spirit interfere? You bet. Well, then what's the difference in the labels? It's the sinful mind of, uh, the sinful mind of the flesh wants to control. I mean, that's the whole point of the flesh. We're, you know, we get in the flesh, we're control freaks. We want to control. We want to control so that we are in charge of everything. And we want to be like God. 
Now, to have something come into our lives from outside of our lives, from heaven, literally out of space, into this planet, that's an interruption and a disturbance. So it's striking to me that Pentecost is actually a mirror image of science fiction. It's exactly opposite. It's a 180 degrees opposite. It is the good that infiltrates and disturbs the evil earth. Earth is evil, and the heavenly source is the good. And you watch it. As you think about the science fiction things that you've seen, I mean, they're entertaining and all that, but think about the, what's going on. Earth is always good, and the interfering power from heaven is always evil. So anyway, Pentecost has this image, and that's the pouring out of the Spirit. But Peter doesn't stop there. In, um, in, in verse 19, where he quotes Joel, he talks about signs and wonders. So we want to understand, well, signs and wonders, blood, smoke, sun, moon... Let's take all those words and scan from verses 22 to verse 36. Here's how you understand Scripture. So you do a vocabulary search and you say to yourself, okay, does he mention earth and blood anywhere between verses 22 and 36? Not that I can see, unless you've got a different text than I do. I don't see those vocabulary words there. Does he talk about fire and smoke anywhere from verses 22 to 36? I don't think you can find those vocabulary words there either. Ah. But now if you scan the words signs and wonders, do you find those words anywhere between verse 22 and 36? Yes, you do. Because there in verse 22 is the phrase. So since we've done an objective scan of the, of the actual vocabulary, now we understand, oh, so out of the Joel passage, he's not picking on the sun and the moon and the blood and the fire and the smoke. He's picking up on the words signs and wonders. And in verse 22, he connects signs and wonders with whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 22, he's not connecting signs and wonders even to Pentecost. He's connecting signs and wonders to the person of Jesus Christ. So we say to ourselves, Peter, what, what, what's your point? And what do you suppose Peter would answer to us? My point is that Jesus Christ is doing, or did, during his lifetime, he did signs and wonders that identify him as God who does miracles because who is doing the signs and the wonders in verse 19? Who's the subject of those? It's God. And you'll notice he's very careful in verse 22 to identify that it's God working through him in your midst, he says. See, that's where he's picked up here, verse 22, unlike he does down in verse 33. In verse 22, he continues the thought that God is doing miracles and signs, or did them, through him in your midst, just as you know. Now, he's talking to unbelievers here, isn't he? And look what he claims. That even unbelievers knew about the signs and the wonders. This wasn't confined to a back door inside a storefront church someplace. This was done outside in the public. So the very fact that he can say at the end of verse 22 that you yourselves know 
tells us that they were public signs and public wonders, open to historical observation. Powerful statement. Okay, so now the second reason is, by quoting this, he's now identified not only that the Holy Spirit is going to give new doctrine, but he's saying that signs and wonders were connected to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are the same kind of signs and wonders that he's going to do later on. All the rest of the blood, the moon, the sun, the vapor, and the smoke, that's yet to come. Now, Peter at this point didn't know it wasn't yet to come. Why? Because in his view, the kingdom could have come here. It could have happened. We'll see more about that as we move through the text tonight. Okay. So now he's made his point in verse 22. Now the problem is that the Jewish unbelievers are going to say, oh, wait a minute here. Hold it. Hold it. You can't have a dead Messiah. Now, come on. I mean, people die. Jesus died. And the Messiah, I mean, what good is a dead Messiah? Well, Peter's going to show him what good is dead Messiah. Watch what he does now. Now he's going to turn to another text of Scripture. And in verses 25 through 28, he's going to, turn, he's going to quote, if you look in your text, you have a study Bible, you'll see what's the psalm that is quoted in verses 25 to 28. By the way, notice how much of his sermon was Old Testament. If Peter dared to say something like this in the average church today, it would be completely over everybody's head because you're not supposed to dig deep into Scripture these days. You're supposed to talk at fourth and fifth grade levels because that's, you know, that's what the media is at. And if you try to talk at any higher level in the fourth or fifth grade, you, you, you bore people. They go to sleep. So in verses 25 to 28, he's talking about the Old Testament Psalm what? 16. So, let's hold our place in Acts 2 and let's go over to Psalm 16 and take a peek at that one. Where did that come from? What's the context of that remark? One of the tricks in looking at Psalms is to look at the Psalm title. In the Hebrew, the verses are numbered beginning with that title, not like your English Bible. In Psalm 16, for example, verse 1 starts a miktam of David. It doesn't start with, preserve me, O God. The text in the Hebrew is considered to be part, the title is considered to be part of the text. That's how the, the, the verses are broken out. So, what a first observation about this Psalm 16. Who wrote it? David wrote it. David's the speaker. Now, we're going to learn a little bit about the Old Testament tonight, looking at this. In Psalm 16, who's doing the speaking? David is doing the speaking. In verse 5, he says, In the middle of his trouble, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou didst support my lot. And by the way, notice in verse 5 something. This is something you'll see in the Psalms if you observe carefully. Remember in English, um, back when I guess they taught English grammar, didn't have creative writing, they had drill and syntax. Well, in those days, we used to learn about different persons. And it used to be the first, second, and third person. First person is I. Second person is you. Third person is he or she. And we used to conjugate verbs that way. 
and it's good observation in Scripture to watch this. Now, in the Psalms, they have peculiar characteristics syntactically. There's an oscillation that goes on between the second and third person. And here in verse 5 is a classic instance of it. The Lord is my portion. You see, in that, it's, it's, he's talking about third person. But then he immediately says, Thou dost support my lot. Second person. And in Hebrew poetry, this oscillation back and forth between the second and third person is a tool that the psalmist uses to show you a perspective. He moves from talking to the Lord to talking about the Lord. To the Lord, about the Lord, to someone else. So it's constant shifting like this. He goes in his priestly way, he talks to God, second person. Then, with the knowledge he has that he's gained from talking to God as a priest, he turns around as a prophet and talks to men about God. So that's why you have this oscillation between the second person, third person, second person, third person. It goes on and on. All right, now he develops it. And in verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. There's a nice verse. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. So up to now, you, it looks like, for all intents and purposes, this text is talking about a faith rest situation. He's in the middle of adversity. He's learned things about the Lord. And now his conclusion is he's resting. Here's the faith rest. I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My glory rejoices. The source of his happiness isn't his circumstances. The source of his happiness is the Lord's promises and the Word. And that, that's, you know, when, when we finally get it right, you know, the few seconds a day that we do, um, that is a marvelous position to be in because it frees you from being dependent on other people and circumstances. And right here is where that rejoice, I will not be shaken. doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter who I'm against. The people all up in verses 3 and 4 he's talking about. And so, because, verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me, I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My glory rejoices. That's what I'm as soul. My flesh will dwell securely. Now, that little phrase, my flesh shall dwell securely, introduces a strange thought. Now, watch the text carefully from here on out. For thou will not abandon my soul. Now, what has he done? Where, see our third person, second person? What's happened here? What's happened is you, if you moved from verse 9 to verse 10. Verse 9 is third or second person. It's third person. Now, in verse 10, it's shifted to second person. For thou wilt not... So what's he doing in verse 10 that he's not doing in verse 9? Verse 10, he's looking at God. For thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will you allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. People cite that as a wonderful promise of God. But it's, it's linked to verse 10. 
the reason that in thy presence is fullness of joy and in thy right hand are pleasures forevermore is talking about something that's a little bit more than just faith rest here. In verse 10, he makes this statement, this statement in the second person. Verse 9 is third person. Verse 11 is second person. Verses 10 and 11 are all addressed to God. For thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and you will not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Parallelism, what noun in the first part of verse 10 is parallel to thy Holy One? Which noun in verse, the first part of verse 10? You will not abandon my soul. So it's my soul that's parallel to thy Holy One. So, if we were reading Psalm 16 fast and we want to get in the promise, we'd say, oh, isn't that, that's a nice thought and I'll claim verse 11 and that's, that's a nice promise. Until, hold the place at Psalm 16 and flip over to Acts 2, Peter takes a very startling, different approach to interpreting Psalm 16. You'll see... Verse 24. He's dealing with the issue of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Why has he had to introduce this? Because, verse 23, the people took the one who was doing signs and wonders in verse 22, and what did they do with it? You crucified him. Idiots. Now what's happened? Now he rose from the dead. God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Well, now he's got to prove that. So now in verse 24, he introduces Psalm 16. But look, how does he introduce Psalm 16? What do you notice immediately about his citation? What is he prefacing the citation with? Look at the text. We just was over in Psalm 16. Does Psalm 16 says David says of him? No. That's Peter's interpretive addition. So now what he's saying is that Psalm 16 is talking about Messiah, not David. Ooh, we didn't see that over in Psalm 16. How did that happen? Well, he goes on. He quotes, My soul, verse 27, See, my soul, thy holy one, you have made me to know, so forth, so forth. Then in verse 29, Here's his logic. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Well, if his tomb is there, how can verse 27 be correct? He has seen corruption. His soul has gone to the grave. And proof of it is, his tomb is with us. Well, now this introduces a crisis. Let's hold a place and go back to Psalm 16 now. Now that requires us to rethink what we just read. Psalm 16 appears at first glance to be David talking to the Lord. But in verse 10 of Psalm 16, he makes a statement about my soul... That, by the way, there's the first person, talking about me, I, my soul. But then he talks about 
thy holy one. Now, if an individual were to say, uh, if you were to say, my holy one, uh, my, my soul, and it's, it's God's holy one, doesn't that kind of strike you as a little arrogant? In other words, there's a statement that's said here in Psalm 16 that just doesn't quite fit with David personally. And here we're introduced to the strange thought, strange to our Western minds, not strange to the Bible, of how David saw himself merge into the Messiah. And it's that phenomena that I mentioned back a couple of years ago when I said, you remember we were talking about in the Old Testament history, here's a timeline. Here we have Saul, here we had David, here we had Solomon, and then we had all these kings and they progressively got more and more gross. And we said, what happened to the, what happened to the kingly line? The monarchy was having to be there as the leadership of God's kingdom. But what does Old Testament history show about the monarchy historically? It corrupted out. Just like in the book of Judges, what corrupted out? The people. Judges is an eloquent argument. You can never have a democracy that's totally correct. And the rest of the Old Testament tells you you can never have a government, civil government run by fallen men that's going to be correct. So here then, you have David as this king who is looking down the line. Why is he looking down the line, first of all? Let's think. What is one of the great covenants of the Old Testament? Davidic covenant. And what does the Davidic covenant say? The descendants of David will one day rule the kingdom of God. Right? So, when David says, my soul, what do you suppose, how can we interpret that? This is an interpretation question tonight. How do we interpret his use of the term, my soul, such that Psalm 16 refers to the Messiah and not David? See, we've got to do something with this. And, matter of fact, the apostles did something to this. Jesus interpreted it this way. My soul is interpreted to be larger than the individual David. But my soul is interpreted to mean the continuity of all the souls in the Davidic line, culminating in the one who would never see death. David, when he gets in a prophetic mode of writing these psalms, doesn't separate himself from the whole end of his dynasty. He speaks as David, and he speaks for the entire David dynasty. And that's what happens in the Old Testament. For example, a few Psalms later, what do you notice in Psalm 22? Who wrote Psalm 22? Coming up on Good Friday, everybody talks about Psalm 22 and Good Friday. Excuse me. But Psalm 22 was written not by Jesus, it was written by David. And he quotes, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But wait a minute, that's what Jesus quoted on the cross. And it's a prophecy of what Jesus quoted. Look at verse 5. Look at the, uh, the, the, the verse 14. 
My bones are out of joint. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 18. They cast lots for my garment. But David wrote this, not Jesus. David wrote it a thousand years before Jesus. What's going on here? How do we properly interpret Psalm 22? There's only one way, folks, is that David envelops himself prophetically in his whole dynasty, all the way down to Jesus. So when David speaks prophetically in the Psalms, he is speaking all the way to the Messiah. Why is that? Because what is the purpose of the Davidic dynasty via via the kingdom of God? You can't have a kingdom without a king. And you can't have a righteous kingdom that is eternally secure without a what kind of king? Sinless king. Perfect king. One who will not be corrupted. A perfect government that is upon his shoulder. So that's the source of the kingdom. So that's why the Davidic covenant is there to secure the king of the kingdom. Now let's go back to Peter. Oh, while we're in Psalms, there's one other place he's going to cite, Psalm 132. So while we're over here, let's take a peek at Psalm 132, because that one's going to come up. See what I mean about listening to these guys and how lost half of us would be today if Peter were to give a sermon like this? We'd have a hard time following it. And you know why? What does that show about us relative to Peter? Duh. Okay, Psalm 132, 10. For the sake of David thy servant, do not turn away the face of thine anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which, by the way, what's that referring to? Sworn to David? Davidic covenant, right. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. So before we go to Acts 2, we'll check out another one. Psalm 110. Heavy stuff. Four major Old Testament passages in a matter of minutes in Peter's address. Psalm 110 one we studied when we studied uh, the previous chapter, the, resurrect, the ascension of Christ. Notice again, verse 5. By the way, who's the author of Psalm 110? David again. Ah. Things coming together here a little bit. The Lord is at my right hand. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpse. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore will he lift up his head. So, verse 4 is saying, it's the Lord talking to David. Second person, but it's the Lord talking to David. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. And if you have a text, I think most of your Bible translations, notice L-O-R-D is capitalized in verse 4. L-O-R-D is not capitalized in verse 5. Why is that? Because the first one refers to Jehovah. The second one is the word for Lord and Master. And the difference is in verse 1. 
Jehovah says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now there's a, an expose of what we're talking about, how David somehow prophetically intermingles Jesus and himself. Because now it all hangs out loose and clear in verse 1 of this song. The Lord, that's clearly God, right? Who does the possessive pronoun my refer to in verse 1? Must be David, yes? M-Y, my, David. Well, then who is the Lord? If David were the highest authority and above him was no else than God, who is this intermediate one that is being addressed by God but yet is over David? See what I'm saying? And here's an example of what goes on. It's, 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 it's mind-boggling. This is not easy. And if you're struggling with it, hey, join the club. But I'm telling you folks, this is how the Holy Spirit worked in real history. If we were there and were taught, we would have struggled. I would imagine David himself would have had a problem telling us about how all this fits together because he was clearly buoyed on by the Holy Spirit, probably not knowing completely what he was writing, but he wrote it nevertheless. Now let's go back to Acts 2 and watch how Peter puts all, this, all the pieces together. So he, he, back in Acts, uh, Acts 2, Peter is going to make the point that Jesus Christ has risen. And he's going to say, after they killed him, verse 24, Jesus Christ rose. So here's his first point. Jesus Christ rose. Now he is going to support that with precedent from the Old Testament. That this isn't just a miracle that just sort of happened in the grave outside Jerusalem. Gee, you know, strange things happen. No, it was part of the structure of the Old Testament prophecies. So that's why in verse 25, 26, 27, 28, he goes into this extensive quote from Psalm 16 that we thought at first glance was referring to David and we were wrong. Psalm 16 actually was looking far further down the Davidic dynasty to the end person who would be Jesus Christ. And verse 29, Peter understood that because he was able to distinguish Psalm 16 from David and say that Psalm 16 doesn't literally apply to David. Psalm 16, though written by David, is prophetically enlarged to include the person of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 30 is an explanation of how Peter saw this. He says the reason is because David was not just an ordinary author, he was a what? What does the text say? He was a prophet, exactly. And he knew, as a prophet, that God had sworn to him with an oath, and there's the citation from Psalm 132, that he would sit one of his descendants upon his throne. Okay? Well, if he knew that one of his descendants would sit upon a throne, and the throne was a throne of an eternal kingdom, then the guy that sits on the throne couldn't be subject to death. So Peter says, this resurrection thing is not something strange, guys. It's in the warp and the woof of the whole Old Testament issue of who's the Messiah. 
Now, this must have blown people's circuits right here. This was tough stuff. And if you read contemporary Judaism at the time Peter preached this, they missed it. This was not popular idea here. This is brand new out of the box. Because who poured out his spirit? Jesus Christ, sitting at the Father's right hand, pours out the spirit. All of a sudden, things begin to click. All of a sudden, these guys say, Ooh, yeah, this is how the Old Testament fits. They probably got a lot of it, you know, on the Maus Road and so on. People, people heard Jesus say this, but it just, you know, it was like they didn't hear him saying it. So, in verse 30, he says, the reason David could write the way he wrote was because he wasn't writing as a poet. He was writing as a prophet, a prophetic poet, if you will. And that's why verse 31, see, verse 30 and 31 is Peter's explanation for the dilemma we just found ourselves in when we read Psalm 16 a few minutes ago. Where said, how does Psalm 16 apply to Jesus? Well, Peter says, verse 30, because first of all, Psalm 16 was written by a prophet who knew something. He knew first Psalm 132, the Davidic covenant. That's all Psalm 132 is. Verse 31, Peter goes on now and he, he tries to show us what David was thinking. He looked ahead. See? That's what's going on. These Psalms aren't just talking about David's personal life. He looks ahead down what? The dynastic line of the Davidic covenant. He's always looking down the dynastic line of the Davidic covenant. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And then he quotes again, what? Psalm 16. Why is he quoting Psalm 16 again? Because he's exegeting the text. See what the apostles did? They taught from the text. They exegeted the text. It wasn't three points, three points in a poem here. It was verses out of tough stuff and messianic passages of the Old Testament. Therefore, now look at the therefore. See, now he gets to the logical conclusion of his point. After he talks about Christ rising, he is able to conclude something. He is free to put a therefore at verse 33. Why? What has he just got through that, that laid the basis for making this logical conclusion? That Jesus Christ fulfills the whole dynastic picture. Therefore, having been exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise, he poured forth this which you see and hear. For it was, da it was not David who was sent into heaven. See, again, notice in verse 34 and verse 29, he's so ever careful to point out you can't make David do that. That's not literal interpretation. David did not ascend into heaven, but he says, the Lord said to my Lord, now there's Psalm 110 being quoted, sit at my right hand until my, my enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, he says, next therefore, verse 36, now here's his grand conclusion, let all the house of Israel know, and by the way, are Gentiles in view here? This is not an evangelistic sermon, folks, of the church age. This is a special address to the nation Israel with Jewish scriptures, with Israel's destiny. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. And as you can tell by verse 37, this walloped 
the people who heard this. These people were really laid open by this thing. This is a pretty hairy, shocking indictment of their sin. And that's why he says in verse 38, Repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And where did he get that phraseology from? He got it from Joel chapter 2. Remember back in verse 21? That's where it came from. Those who call on the Lord. So he's not only quoting directly these Old Testament prophetic scriptures, he's making allusion after allusion after allusion. I'm not an illusion, allusion. That is a reference to quote. He takes whole phrases out of the prophets and uses them in his teaching. Okay. Now, it says the Holy Spirit went on. And it described, the, the text goes on. People were baptized. They were devoting themselves to teaching and prayer, breaking of bread, and so forth. People had a sense of awe. What two words do you look at in verse 43 that reappear? That were part of the Joel quote. Oh, wonders and signs. Who were doing the wonders and signs in verse 43? Not every Christian. Who was doing the wonders and the signs? The apostles were doing the wonders and the signs. They were his special spokesmen. And they continued in the temple and so forth. Now to get the mentality and put ourselves in the position of the house of Israel, standing there in rapt attention, listening to this guy in the fishing business talk about all of a sudden people talking in supernatural languages, and you were saying, what is going on here today? You know, I've been coming to Jerusalem for this Feast of Pentecost for a number of years. I never heard this before. What is going on? Well, we want to put ourselves in the mentality. So I'm going to, in conclusion to the lesson tonight, I want you to go back over to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at how the ordinary Jew was thinking about David and the kingdom. Lest we get too sloppy in our interpretation and begin to think that this is just a general sermon and talk about the church. Remember I introduced this section between chapter 1 and chapter 2 with the um, appendix where I distinguish reformed theology from dispensational theology and what was my point about dispensational theology, why it advanced further from where Reformation theology left us as a church. And that is, the dispensational approach to Scripture looks carefully at the historical context and a literal interpretation of the text. Now, one of the issues that we haven't got time to deal with tonight, but it's a bright issue. Reformed theology interprets Peter's sermon to refer to the fact that when Jesus sat at the Father's right hand, that was the throne of David. Okay? That's how they interpret it. They mishmash two thrones into one. There's two thrones here. What are they? The Lord said to my Lord, sit where? At my right hand. But then David's talking about somebody that's going to sit on his throne. Where is David's throne? On earth. Two distinct thrones. Not the same. Now that's what we want to conclude with. Look at Luke 1. Look at verse 30. Here's the angel in Christmas time coming to Mary. 
here's a Jewish teenage girl. Angel talks to her. They're not doing any kind of slippery exegesis of any scripture. They're not trying to worm around things. Just look at the natural way. If you were Mary, how would you interpret this? I mean, you know, you're, you're, you, you are, you learn you're pregnant, and, and no man is, you have never had sex with any man, and you're pregnant. I mean, right away, you've got, a, got an unusual situation. So, you're in, sitting there in rapt attention. What's going on here? Now, what's the angel got to tell me about this little thing? All right, in verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father David. Now, if you were Mary, would you think of that throne as in heaven or would you think of that throne as on earth? On earth, right? Okay, let's go further in Luke chapter 1. Look down in verse um, 54. Here's Mary's Magnificat. By the way, this girl was a tiger. She wasn't some little uh, floating flower. Mary was grounded theologically. I don't know where she got her education. And by the way, this also refutes the idea that women's libs have of, oh, the Bible was written in a patriarchal culture and women didn't count. That's reading back Islamic culture or something into the Old Testament. Screwball idea. Where did this teenage girl get all this theology from here if women weren't trained and educated in Scripture? Come on, you know, get real. I mean, this, this Magnificat has so much theology in it that theologians have a problem with it. Like they would come to this little 14, 15, 16-year-old Jewish girl, hey, honey, would you please explain what you just said? That's basically where we are theologically. She was so far advanced. And so she says in verse 54... He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Abrahamic covenant she's talking about. Offspring. The dynasty concept again. Further, finally, look at what Zechariah says further on in this chapter, verse 67. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. And look at what he's prophesying. He has visited and accomplished his redemption for his people in the house of David, verse 69. Salvation from our enemies. To remember, verse 72, his holy covenant, the oath he swore to Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, granted to be delivered from the hands of our enemies. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to repair his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Now, would this be conceived in those, in those people talking this way, this Zacharias and Mary? You think these people are talking about something in heaven? Or you think they're talking about something right there in the city of Jerusalem? It's obvious. These people are thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom here. No question about it. And so that's why when we understand and we go on further in Acts 2 and 3 with Peter and Pentecost, we want to think like a Jewish person would have thought at that time, at that place. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness in history that you made contracts with members of the human race, Abraham, Moses, David, and you have been faithful to the letter 
of each one of these contracts. And we rejoice that history is run contractually, that it's not a random process, that it's not subject to some impersonal physics or impersonal economic forces, but rather is subject to your personal spoken word and decree. For we know that you work all things after the counsel of your will, including every molecule that's in place in the geophysical universe, as well as every event that has ever happened in history. We thank you that you have a well-ordered plan and that we are nested within that well-ordered plan, no matter how chaotic it may first appear to us as we go through each day of our lives. May you give us that sense that David had of a rest for our souls, that we can rest upon the fact that you are faithful to do what you have promised. In Christ's name, amen. We have time here for a short discussion, if there are any questions and answers, um, besides the big question George just gave me, <laughs> which would take too long to answer in our 10, 15 minutes. Um, is there, so far, the, in the Pentecost issue, um, you just want to grasp what the overall event was and why you can't, you have to take a lot of care in understanding what was going on here in Pentecost. Because it's the coming of the Holy Spirit upon people in ways that were absolutely without precedent in biblical history. So it's a major event. And the doctrine, by the way, you can well imagine, the doctrine I'm going to associate with Pentecost is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to deal, we never have dealt with that. We've dealt with essence of God, we've dealt with the person of Christ, but we've never dealt with the person of the Holy Spirit. So that's coming up and that's going to be the doctrine connected to Pentecost. Now, is it somehow connected with Revelation? I mean, meaning like God revealing himself? It's you mean, Reve not the book of... Yes. Yeah, and and that's right. That's exactly right. The pouring out of the Spirit is connected to the New Testament revelation, and this gets um, well. Shall we say it? It's a subject that you have to be precise in how you discuss, because there have come in church history some weird ideas here. And I, just as kind of like a foreview of, of things, one of the questions of all time is, were the signs and the wonders that showed up on the day of Pentecost, are those signs and wonders to be normative throughout all church history in every person's life? And the answer is that no, they were foundational signs and wonders. Does that mean God can't do miracles today? No. God can heal people today. It's just that when God heals people today, it's not of the kind of healing that we observe in the book of Acts. You'll see the notes that I handed out. I'm starting to pick this up now. And that's one of the controversial things about Pentecost, because we have a whole denomination called Pentecostal who believe in the perpetuation of these gifts. And classic Protestant theology are, is cessationist. 
What's cessation? C-E-S-S. Cessation. It's ceasing. And so classical Protestant theology is cessationist in that apostles don't occur throughout church history. Speaking of languages doesn't occur throughout church history. Uh, The miracle healings that we see Paul doing with his handkerchiefs is not not continued down through church history. So what's going on? Why? Well, the answer is going to be because, as Debbie pointed out, the revelational job of these gifts was completed. When you build a house, you don't lay a foundation upon a foundation upon a foundation upon a foundation, do you? You let the foundation, you pour it, and the foundation is made, and then what do you do? Now you build a house on the foundation. Well, Ephesians 2.20 says, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the church has been built. So when the apostles and prophets finished their job, the foundation was finished and the church could get on with business. Plenty of things to do in church history besides repour concrete every century. So that, that's, that's the major controversy that's going to happen here with Pentecost. It's a major issue. Pentecostals insist upon propagating all gifts for all Christians throughout all time. The Mormons insist that the apostles go on and on and on and on and on. The Roman Catholic Church believes in the continuing apostolic oral tradition and the fact that the Pope acts as sort of an apostle, one Pope after another. So this is a major, you know, parting the ways here for things. And Pentecost sets it up. So that's why I'm spending all this time trying to get this clear as to what is happening at Pentecost and what is not happening at Pentecost. Pentecost is a unique event, just like the cross. Jesus doesn't get crucified time after time after time, and the Holy Spirit doesn't come and do his thing like he does in Pentecost time after time after time. In fact, he does it three times. He does it in Acts 2. He does it in Acts 10. He does it in Acts 19, and that's it. And you'll see a chart in the notes you have tonight where those are all documented, and you'll see if you line up one after another, lo and behold, guess what? You see that Acts 1.8 is fulfilled. What did Acts 1.8 say? You should be witnesses where? Jerusalem, Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the world. Okay? Three areas. And you have three of these little mini Pentecosts that happened. First, it was in Jerusalem. Next one, you could say, was also in Acts 8, was in Samaria. You have Acts 10, Cornelius. And was Cornelius a Jew? Cornelius was a Gentile. He was part of the Roman army. So now you have the gospel going forth into all the world, touching the whole Roman Empire. So there's a structure there. And we're going to look at that, and we're going to cover verses that support cessation. That is, that these things were done, completed, and were to get on with life by paying attention to what the Holy Spirit poured out, which was the canon of the New Testament. And that becomes the focus point. Yes, George. Uh, you mentioned the future two points the prophets and the apostles. And then Peter, you know, is an apostle, yet refers to himself as a prophet. And then, of course, you know what I'm involved with, with uh, people considering the church being uh, Israel and all the mix up there. Uh, is there anything to that as far as what the scripture says there, does that lead into some of that 
confusion of the lack of distinction between the church and Israel, with Peter calling himself a prophet, and Ephesians 2.20 talking about the prophets and the apostles. I assume that in Ephesians 2.20, well, what is, what is Ephesians 2.20 talking about when it says the prophets? Talking about the New Testament prophets like Peter, or uh, is it talking about the Old Testament prophets? Well, it doesn't really matter because Ephesians 2.20 is talking about something that's already finished. So it's, it's talking about an end to the process. Don't worry about whether the prophets there are Old Testament or New Testament prophets because both dispensational reform theology look to the prophets for truths. So I know what you, they're talking about. They're talking about, well, see, that shows you the church was in the Old Testament. Well, the, the point is that the church is defined, and you, again, this is coming in the notes that you just got, something called the baptism of the Spirit. And the baptism of the Spirit is what puts you in union with Christ. Could you have been in union with Christ in the Old Testament? No, because Christ hadn't come yet. Could you have been in union with Christ during his earthly ministry? No, because he wasn't ascended and seated yet. So what's the first time in history you could be in union with Christ? After the ascension and session. So the church had to start after the ascension and session. That's why we say there's this big dividing point. The reason that uh, classic Reformed theology does what it does is because it redefines the word church. They're using the word church differently than the way we're using the word. We're both using the same word, spelled the same way, mean to totally different things. They're using the word church as a synonym for all saved people. We are not using the word church to refer to all saved people. We're referring, using the word church to refer to those people saved since Pentecost. And that's, that's, again, these two things. That's why I covered that whole thing. Not that you, we understand all the details, but I wanted to expose you to the fact that when you start getting into these things in the New Testament, see, here's where it comes up now. Here we are in Pentecost, and here we are, two different roads, and we're going to see that time after time. We do share, by the way, with Reformed theology, cessationism, though. That they agree and we agree. And it's funny that they do in one sense because if the church is nothing more than Israel, Israel had a continuing line of prophets, why not the church? That's sort of interesting. Um, the church is not Israel. So, uh, any other questions tonight before the town burns down? Yes? The calendar uh, that you went through, um, the, uh, the Passover with the crucifixion, the license of the crucifixion. First fruits was the uh, resurrection. Pentecost was the, uh, the spirit. Were all those things always so close? I mean, did they start the Passover feast and then go through all of these other uh, feasts and celebrations while they were in Jerusalem? Well, Pentecost is Penta 50, so it's 50 days later. Oh, they, they people could come again to Jerusalem for that feast. That's what was going on in Acts 2. That's where all the tourists came from, all those different places that heard the languages in their own national origin points. And we were talking about this, Bunny uh, and I were talking about it, and these folks just hung around for at least 10 days. Because, right, I mean, they were there for, they were there for, uh, um, well, they were there, uh, Josephus. They were told to hang around until the spirit came. Oh, uh, yeah. 
so okay, so yeah. No, but Pentecost came ten days after Jesus ascended. First, you have the first you have George. First, you have the Passover. That's when Christ was crucified. Then you have a space of time until Pentecost. It just turned out during those days Jesus was showing himself. Remember, for this week, several weeks, he appeared, and then Jesus departed ten days before Pentecost. Well, when Pentecost came, these people came. And it's interesting, if you study history, Josephus reports something interesting. You know how many people came to Jerusalem? Josephus gives us account that when these, when these holidays showed up, lots of people were there. Josephus thinks, or reports, we don't know, because I mean, we don't have a census to check him, but Josephus argues that there was between 1.5 and 2 million Jews that were in that city to come to those feasts. I mean, I don't know where the motels were in those days, but I would imagine that there were tents all over the place. This was big stuff. And like good Jewish boys, good business. Right? These holidays, I mean, you could make the national economy sing on the three holidays. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So, we're not talking small stuff here, folks. This is big, big time business. And that's why it's interesting who designed Pentecost originally. The Lord. So all these people had no consciousness of it and they just came because it was the feast and the time to do and go back to see Grandma. She's building, you know, she's sitting around Jerusalem and I'm, out, I'm a businessman out in the Mediterranean. I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'll see Aunt so-and-so and Grandma so-and-so and have a good time Pentecost. Parties around, that kind of thing. So it was a holiday. And it was deliberately structured that way centuries before so that when the Holy Spirit came, there'd be one and a half to two million people sitting there. Beautiful timing. Okay, we'll, uh, next week I guess we'll uh, go further. Oh yes, next, next Thursday we'll have Tommy Ice here. And I've asked Tommy to address you advanced students with uh, the history of prophecy in the church. So he's going to go through church history and go through some of these prophetic, the, the different kinds of views of prophecy. So it should be pretty, pretty good lecture.